6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck completes his teaching on the book of Jude, verses 1 through 4. In his discussions of qualifications and so forth of the ministry, he says to Timothy in chapter 3, verse 9, he says, holding the mystery of faith in a pure conscience. The word mystery there is mysterian in the Greek. It means something was hidden up till now, but I'm now revealing. So there's something about faith that's not really obvious. It's not a glib, easy thing. Faith is more than belief. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved in your house. Great. I can believe that that chair will hold my weight. I don't have faith in it until I rely on it. Faith has to do with not just believing, but relying on that belief. We just read in 1 Timothy 4.1, since we're on this page, I'll call your attention again just a little over. Uh, uh, now the Spirit ex speaking expressly that in the latter times, some shall depart from the faith and give heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of demons. Faith is something that is going to depart from the earth in the last days in some broad way. That's, what, that's why the epistle to Jude is such a last days issue. Apostasy is going to be not something that just happens the last days, it's going to characterize the last days. As long as 1 Timothy, turn to 1 Timothy 5 verse 8. Faith involves duty to others. 1 Timothy 5 8. It says, But if any provide not for his own, especially for those of his own house, he hath denied the faith which is worse than an infidel. Hey guys, did you know that you had an obligation to provide for your families? You sort of knew that. I mean, you read the book of Proverbs and your wife reminds you of that. Did you? But the first Timothy 5 8 is kind of heavy. If any provide not for his own, and especially for those of his own house, he hath denied the faith. That's kind of heavy. Remember that, girls, when your husband's worried about trying to find, put bread on the table? It's not, that's not materialism, it's his compliance with 1 Timothy 5 8. It's an act of faith. What's it? He needs to provide for his own. That's an injunction from God himself. It shows up lots of places, but this is perhaps the heavy one. Because if you don't do it, you're worse than an infidel. Faithful teaching establishes the church in faith. We know that from Acts 16.5. And uh, all believers are instructed to stand fast and continue in faith. 1 Corinthians 16, 13, Acts 14, 22. I don't think we need to take the time to chase those down. Those are pretty self-evident in instructions in the, in the epistles. Okay. A couple of other things, though, about this issue of apostasy. Any claim of additional revelation outside the Bible is uh, evidence of apostasy. What's my authority? Deuteronomy 4, 2, and Revelation 22, 18. Just to give you a couple. Let's turn to the Torah. I like this because we, 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 we're familiar with this in Revelation. Let's look at that in a minute. Those are the, the bracketing ones. There's dozens of verses like this, but I'll take the earlier one and the last one. Deuteronomy, the Torah, the Pentateuch. Chapter 4, verse 2. 
God says, ye shall not add to the word which I command you, neither shall ye diminish anything from it, that ye may keep the commandments of the Lord your God which I command you. That's typical of many, many passages in Scripture. It occurs, obviously, in the Torah, as I've mentioned just here. And let's go to the end, other end of the book, chapter 20, Revelation chapter 22. Uh, verse 18 of 22 speaks specifically of the book of Revelation, but I don't think it's, uh, I think it'd be pretty argumentative to try to argue that it doesn't apply to the Bible as a whole. Let's read verse 18 of chapter 22 of the book of Revelation. For I testify unto every man that heareth the words of this prophecy of this book. If any man shall add unto these things, God shall add unto him the plagues that are written in this book. If any man shall take away from the words of the book of his prophecy, God shall take away his part from the tree of life and out of the holy city and from the things which are written in this book. You want to add anything or subtract anything? I don't think so. <laughs> I don't think so. Now, what that really says is that somebody that tries to add to the truths of God or subtract from them has got a heavy problem. But uh, in the generic that we're dealing with, we're talking about apostasy. Now, all this gives rise to an issue that, for lack of a better word, I'll call combat faith. Hal Lindsey just published a book called Combat Faith, which deals with this issue too. But the whole idea is that your faith is not just a passive, private, invisible thing that you, that's neat around the dining room table when you have a family night with your family. Faith isn't just something in the quiet hours of the morning when you read your allotted three chapters a day or whatever program you've set for yourself. Faith is a combatant thing. And your passage for that is Ephesians 6. You know, it's interesting. In our home, we have kind of a large entrance and a library right between it. So the styling lends itself to a suit of armor. And because of the house, we some time ago acquired a suit of armor, and it stands there by the door. And people come to our house and, what's that thing, you know? And, well, that's Ephesians 6. And, they, and, and if they're a Christian, they know right away what we mean. If they're not, we give us an excuse to go in and say, you know, put on the whole armor of God and the feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace and so, so forth. So Ephesians says, uh, in the interest of time, I won't get into the details, but those of you that are familiar with it, it'd be well to review Ephesians 6, that you put on the whole armor of God. And that's both defensive and offensive. That's so that you can withstand a combat that is destined for you, and at the same time you can... Be an active warrior for the faith. And um, so um, that's not bad. We got through three verses and to set a record. We'll, we got one more. We'll go through verse four. I think we can make it. And that way we won't be lagging around here for... Okay. Now the question I'm going to ask then, getting back to Jude, verse four, is why did Jude have to write the book? We know to whom it's written. We know the Holy Spirit diverted his original purpose to another purpose, what is that purpose? Why is this necessary? Because of verse 4. There are tares among the wheat. That's what verse 4 says. Verse 4, For there are certain men crept in unawares who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men, turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness and denying the only Lord God and our Lord, Jesus Christ. Three marks of an apostate that we'll get into. But the first thing, this is the reason, it's because of verse 4 that the letter had to be written. It's because of verse 4 that the Holy Spirit admonishes us, exhorts us to contend earnestly for the faith. Why? Because there's subversives in our midst. 
Now, you all know the story of the tares and the wheat. If you don't, you can review, refresh your memory in Matthew 13, verses 24 through 30. We won't take the time tonight. In the parable, in the kingdom parables of Matthew 13, we have the same symbols used in several of the parables. A sower goes to sow, to sow seed. What is a seed? The Word of God. In one of those parables, the second parable, at night when no one is around, an enemy came and sowed tares, or weeds, if you will, among the things. So when they started, when they sprouted up, they found out not only the good wheat, but there's also weeds. And what do you do? You let them grow until the time of the end. Then they'll be separated. That's the gist of it. Matthew 24, or Matthew 13, verse 24 through 30. So that's the reason, is that there are false brethren that have stolen into the church. Let's turn to Galatians chapter 2. There are many, many passages. You just pick a few here. But Galatians chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. Paul writing to Galatians says, And that because of false brethren unawares brought in, who came in secretly to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage, to whom we give place by subjection, no, not for an hour, that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. And he goes on. Okay, now as saints, are you in parallel? Apparently, let's take a look at 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Paul is here talking about perils. And then he lists a bunch of these for a purpose in his argument here, which I won't get into right now, but he just says, In journeyings often, verse 26, In journeyings often, in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils of mine own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils of the city, in perils of the wilderness, in perils in the sea. You know Paul's life, he was accident prone. You know? I'm saying that facetiously, of course. But he was indeed a man that was buffeted by many things. But you notice the last one he lists here. In perils among false brethren. Okay. So perils come from all shapes and sizes. And he goes on to talk about this, and I won't, I won't belabor it. Okay. Saints can be in peril. And particularly in the latter times. And uh, this is, uh, again, uh, my references there would include th things like the First Timothy 4.1 passage, doctrines of demons and so forth. That's going to get increasingly uh, relevant. Now, the warnings of this were written as early as the earliest dawn of history. None other than the earliest prophet you probably can imagine, Enoch, who was the father of Methuselah. Hmm? whose child was a prophecy of the flood, warns of these things. And, and Jude is going to take that up. I won't take it up tonight because we're going to get into that stuff. It's going to be kind of fun. Verses 14 and 15 in the book of Jude. Okay, so the next question is, what is an apostate as we get into all this? And here we can go to another parable, the parable of the sower and the seed. We all know the sower of the seed where he has good ground and rocky ground and so forth. What most people don't do is study the words there. It's interesting that the rocky ground... Um, in Luke 8, 13, the rocky ground receives the word. The word is decomai, receives the word, but it has no root. The seed that falls on the good ground, the Greek word is paradecomai, it not just receives it, it welcomes it. There's a different kind of reception going on. The one leads to roots and fruit and good, good results. The others don't understand the word, does not bring up forth, bring forth fruit. This is all Matthew 13, verse 23 as an example. We're going to discover that those, and later on we get verse 12 of the epistle, we're going to discover that they were without fruit, they're twice dead, and they're plucked up by the roots. And we're going to get into that. What do you mean twice dead? 
And we'll talk about that when we get to verse uh, 12. That's a little bit ahead of us here. Now, this concept of apostasy that we're dealing with is not simply indifference or error or even getting tangled up with a heresy. The concept of apostasy is actually a rejection of the truth of God. People that received light but not life. People that have the written word but not the living word in them. And the examples we're going to discover obviously include Judas Iscariot. We don't have this not mentioned the epistle, but that's an obvious example of the extreme apostate. But the three that are going to be mentioned, this thing climaxes up in verse 11, will be Cain, Balaam, and Korah. And we'll deal with that when we get there. But those, the earliest apostate is Cain, Cain and Abel. What's really going on there? We're going to take this issue all the way to the gates of Eden and start there. And what is Balaam all about? This strange character that surfaced in the book of Numbers that is featured so prominently in the book of Revelation. We'll talk about Balaam a bit. And of course, Korah, which, uh, you know, uh, discovers what, how God enforces his authority in some interesting ways. Now, what manner of men are these? These are men that creep in privately, privately, secretly. They settle down alongside false teachers that bring in damnable heresies, and we saw that in 2 Peter 2, 1 earlier. There are three identifiers of these apostates. They're ungodly, whatever that means. They pervert the grace of God into lasciviousness, and they deny our Lord and Savior. Those are the three identifiers. And by the way, those three identifiers fit the three that are going to climax the epistle in verse 11. Cain of ungodliness, Balaam in perverting the grace of God, and Korah denying God's appointed leader at that time. So there's a parallelism of the three that are chosen with these three identifying characteristics that the Holy Spirit uh, lays out for us. We use the term ungodly. What do we really mean? Someone's destitute of a rever reverential awe of God. That's what being ungodly means. It doesn't have to be a militant atheist to be ungodly. It's just somebody who does not have a reverential attitude of awe toward God. Look around in our society. You don't have to be guilty of pornographic films on cable TV to be ungodly. All you have to do is be a secular humanist who doesn't really acknowledge or recognize the existence of God in operative in our lives. The word ungodly. It can be someone, according to 2 Timothy 3.5, who has the form but denies the power of God. It's Romans 1.16. It's someone who denies the gospel of Christ. That's easy. Someone in Philippians 3.10, someone that denies the transforming power of new life. In other words, someone could be ungodly if he isn't embracing the essential truths of God. Now, the interesting thing um, from, from, from the Old several Old Testament remembrance, it's the heart, not the outward appearances, that's the key. It's not the appearance of God, and this is where are they at really. Now, let me give you an example of something that appears pleasant and rational. This whole view, we hear a lot about the brotherhood of man. All men are brothers. Isn't that a pleasant, easy idea? Very comfortable, very popular. The brotherhood of man. How many apparently worthwhile charities and efforts are under that manner? The only problem with that is, well, there's several problems with it. In John Chapter 8, verse 44, Jesus Christ speaks, speaking to part of the crowd, the Pharisaical part of the crowd, ye are of your father the devil, 
and the works of your father ye will do. Remember that? Turn with me to John 8. I love John 8 because it's so tactful. And it's so tactful. John 8 is kind of fun because when you get down to about verse 19, there's a little dialogue going on with Jesus Christ and the Pharisees, and in the politeness of the King James, you miss it. In verse 18, Jesus said, I am the one that beareth witness of myself. The Father that sent me beareth witness of me. And then they say to him, Where is thy Father? Now what you miss is the implied snide crack. They're, a, they're calling him a bastard. They're alluding to his illegitimate illegitimacy vis-a-vis Joseph and Mary. Jesus just answers, you know neither me nor my father, and he goes on. And this builds up so that by the time, before the chapter is over, he gives them a lesson. He doesn't defend his legitimacy, but he comments on theirs. And this all builds up pretty neat because it gets uh, to verse 44 where it says, Ye are of your father, the devil, and the lusts of your father ye will do. He was a murderer from the beginning. And about when did, who did he murder? Adam, you bet. The first murder wasn't Cain and Abel. The first murder was Satan's murdering of Adam by getting Adam to become mortal, if in fact. Uh, and but not in truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, and for he's a liar and the father of it. And he goes on here, and uh, so forth. And I, and I love the way it ends, where he, he claims to be the voice in the burning bush. He says, you know, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. Verse 56, your, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. The Jews said to them, oh, you're not yet 50 years old. How can, you see, how can you say you've seen Abraham? Jesus said, verily I say unto you, before Abraham was, I am. And he's using the very structure that uh, the voice of the burning bush said to Moses. And that's really uh, uh, the, the, the I am statement. The book, Gospel of John is built about seven, around seven I am statements by Jesus Christ. Now, you and I missed that, but they didn't because in verse 59 they tried to stone him. They understood that that was what he was saying. Anyway, um, universal brotherhood of man. It's interesting to me that, uh, first of all, we need to understand that all men are not brothers. There are members in the family of God and there are members that are not. And that sounds bigoted, it sounds narrow, but that's what God tells us, and that's the brotherhood of man sounds appealing, but is denies the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's very interesting to me that in Europe there's a confederation of nations. We call it the common market, more properly called the European community. You may know they have a parliament, they have a budget, they have things. Did you know they have a national anthem? You didn't know that. Did you know what the national anthem of the European community is? Schiller's Ode to Joy under Beethoven's Ninth. The next time you get a chance to read a libretto of Beethoven's, it's that fabulous music. We sometimes we have a hymn that goes to the same music, you know, all a mentioned brood and brooder. All men are brothers. Schiller's Ode to Joy. It's an eloquent exclamation of the brotherhood of man. How interesting it is that this federation of nations that comprise the original Roman Empire are emerging as a confederation, built on world trade, as Revelation 17 and 18 suggest, and maybe the precursor to a lot of other interesting things. It's interesting that their national anthem is a brotherhood of man. So I thought I'd share that with you. Moving on. Ungodly is the first part of the posse. Secondly, it perverts the grace of God and lasciviousness. It's not hard for us to visualize how someone can pervert Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. By the grace of God we are saved, so therefore we have liberty in Christ. Therefore, we can, it's anything we do is all right. And how easy it is to use the liberty of Christ to be turned into lasciviousness. 
What does the grace of Jesus Christ call the Christian to really do? Turn to Titus 2. Nothing else will break open your Bibles and turn to pages you may not even turn to yet. Titus chapter 2. Let's talk about the grace of God. You know, we talked a lot in our studies about the difference between grace and works and so forth. Great. Grace is our liberty in Christ. But what should that lead to? What should that freedom in Christ lead to? Freedom from the law. Freedom from works. Reliance entirely on Jesus Christ's completed work on the cross. What does that lead to? Titus tells us in chapter 2, verse 11 and 12. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that, denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age, and looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of that great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. And he goes on. What do we mean by perverting the grace of God? Well, number one, a Christian walk is constructive, but also I might suggest that the, re the rejection of the Word of God occurs whenever it's displaced by tradition, custom, loyalty to some other organization. Very worthwhile things, very attractive things. When they displace the primacy of the Word of God in your life, that's perverting the grace of God. Interesting, isn't it? Tradition, custom, creed, loyalty to an organization, you name it. Anything that gets in the way, anything that yields your loyalty to something other than his word is dangerous. I know I've been loyal to a lot of things that cause me a lot of introspection. There's only one thing you and I want to be primarily loyal to, and that's his word. Ungodly perverts the grace of God. The third thing, the obvious thing, is he that the apostate denies our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. There are four ideas embodied in this denial, our only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. And if you really dissect that, you discover there's four items in there. One is a sovereignty, pre-existent creator of all things. We go into Colossians and elsewhere to establish that. Secondly, he is the Lord of all true believers. The name Jesus refers to Jehovah the Savior, our martyr substitute, he who died for us, his role as our Savior. That's different than being our Lord. He can be your Savior, but is he really the Lord of your life? That's all thing I'll leave you with. And of course, Christ is a title, the Mashiach of Israel, the Messiah, the appointed one of the Old Testament prophecy. And obviously, if we deny him, he'll deny us, and there's plenty of verses on that. Matthew 10, 33, 2 Timothy 2, 12, 1 John 2, 22 and 23, to name a few, where if we deny him, he will, in fact, deny us. First four verses of Jude we've completed. Next time, we'll obviously pick it up at verse 5. Let me give you your homework assignments. There'll be a quiz. Numbers 14. You might find it interesting to look at Numbers 14 and find the answered prayer. What happened to Israel in the wilderness is extremely important. We know that from the amount of New Testament epistles who focus on it. So in addition to Numbers 14, which you might find fruitful to read before next time, you might turn to 1 Corinthians 10, the first 12 verses, which deals with all of this. And if you've still got some time to dig, uh, Hebrews chapter 3 and chapter 4 deal with this. The lessons of Israel in the wilderness as they pertain to you and I in terms of our faithfulness. And those of you that are really ambitious and want to prepare for 
what probably won't occur next time, but might, but more than likely maybe the time following, would be, I suggest, when we get to Jude 6, you'll want to read Genesis chapter 6. First few verses, Second Peter chapter 2. You might also want to read the, hit, the origin and career and ambitions and destiny of Satan in terms of Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28. Because we're going to get into creepy stuff as we go into that stuff. Let's stand for a closing word of prayer. Jude's going to be fun. A lot of stuff in it. But the central issue, the central issue is apostasy. The central issue for you and I is are we contending earnestly for the faith? Are you contending earnestly for the faith? When you find a ministry you find responsive, do you support it? With a letter of encouragement or an offering if the Lord leads you that way. Whether it's a the church you attend, a fellowship that has a need, a broadcast, uh, whatever. Uh, that's one of the ways. Can you support the ministries that are true to the whole counsel of God? And you speak out when you see a challenge to God's truth or the role and ministry and completed work of Jesus Christ. The challenge that the Lord would have for all of us tonight and as we go through this epistle is, are we and how are we faithfully agonizingly, contending for the faith. Let's bar our hearts. Father, we praise you that you have indeed called us to be your own. We thank you, Father, that you have loved us so much as to give us our Lord and Savior. We also thank you, Father, that you have pledged to keep us in your forever family. We would ask you, Father, to just help us to grow in grace in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We would ask you, Father, to Make us more sensitive, more aware of the ways that we should indeed be earnestly contending for the faith. We would ask you, Father, to help us prepare for those unique ministries you have for each and every one of us forthcoming. We would ask you, Father, to increase in us a hunger for your word and increasing sensitivity to those things that will equip us for the warfare ahead. In all these things, Father, we would ask that you would feed us, encourage us, strengthen us, that we indeed might be more effective bond slaves of Jesus Christ, that we might be more pleasing in thy sight. O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Jude. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android app store or search K-House TV on your Roku or Fire TV streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.